Welcome to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. Marketing is our passion, and as a chapter, we hope to inspire dialogue, fuel creativity, and create a community for marketers everywhere. Let the inspiration and dialogue begin. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe to our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Hello, I'm your host, Josh Janoviak. Today's topic, don't let your website hamstring your marketing. It's 2019, but ineffective, outdated, and unhelpful websites still hamstring the majority of marketers. New technology and experiences continue to push the web forward every day, but often sites go untouched for years. Your website should be the cornerstone of your marketing efforts, not something that you work around. Today, we'll discuss what you should be focusing on in 2019 and how to start triaging what you have and how to evolve from establishing a stable baseline to a sustainable practice of continuous iteration. We'll also cover how to tell if your site should be iterated, refreshed, or rebuilt based on your unique situation. Key topics we'll discuss, discovery, mobile's effect, SEO, content strategy, design, and future proofing. Want to introduce our co-host today, AMA West Michigan President Rebecca Dutcher. Hello. How are you doing? Super. My heart is very happy hearing about all these web marketing things right now. Yeah. Are you very techy? Are you going to be able to get down in, in the weeds with us today? Technical enough to be slightly dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm there too. I, I hope to learn a lot from this conversation. So Josh Stoffer, CEO of Blue Flame Thinking, uh, optimistic believer in digital's transformative power on the landscape of B2B marketing. Josh brings over a decade of agency experience to his role as CEO and president of Blue Flame Thinking. He has the hands-on experience of a former programmer mixed with the sharp instincts of a dedicated client partner, both of which help him focus the agency and its relationships toward the future. Josh started making things at a very early age. His formative years were filled with hours of sketching, carving, building, painting, and traveling. Hello, Josh, and welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Blue Flame thinking first. Your mission, who you serve, office locations. Yeah, we're Blue Flame Thinking. We're a marketing and advertising agency. Uh, our local listeners may remember us more as Alexander Marketing. We've been in the area for 54 years. I'm not the first owner or the original person here, obviously. I'm not that old, but we have offices in two locations, Grand Rapids and Chicago. We primarily serve financial marketing and manufacturing marketing needs for clients that only work in the B2B space. Uh, even though there's more of a blurry line between that and consumer today than there ever has been, that's our vertical and where we play. Now, how about some of your clients and some of the notable successes that you've had? Sure. Um, I'll split them into two groups. On the manufacturing end, which is primarily housed in Grand Rapids, uh, big clients would be Pentair Water. They're a pool manufacturer. Um, we've actually been working with them for 20 years now. We've moved them across two different brands, rebranded them a couple of times. Most notably recently, we moved them all onto Adobe Experience Manager, which was a huge push for them, modernizing their technology stack for marketing automation. So I would consider that to be a great win. On the financial end, we work with pretty large name brands like Nationwide and Principal uh, Insurance and others like that. But we work specifically in 
the section that deals with providing marketing and collateral material for advisors within that area. So, so you presented to the West Michigan AMA on the topic of websites and not letting your website hamstring you along. Do you do a lot of day-to-day work on the web end, the back end development? Do I, or does the agency? You. No, I'm not allowed to touch anything anymore. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I consistently get my hand slapped when I try to do what I used to do. I think that's definitely an area where keeping your skills 100% up to date is critical, right? You can be dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And in a lot of cases, it's really easy to do something the wrong way, even in a CMS if you don't have proper training. Um, and the way that the team builds things now requires sort of a cohesive group understanding, which I'm removed from now being primarily new business. and. Okay. And that's something I definitely want to talk about uh, because we probably got a a mixed level of marketers that do work on websites. So the question, you know, as we kind of go along through here for me is, you know, what kind of stuff is, is a smaller mom and pop capable of handling on their own versus what should be sent out to an agency for somebody who really knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. How technical is this stuff? Uh, what kind of stuff can you realistically handle on your own or what should you um, get additional help with? So we'll kind of cover that as we go, but let's jump right into the web. It's it's changed so much since Al Gore invented it back in whatever day that was, right? <laughs> yeah. And even just back over the last 10 years, we think about how design of websites have changed and operations have changed. So let's just start off with a brief state of where we are, say, versus 10 years ago. Oh, man. I think it's night and day. 10 years ago, most of the best content on the web was content that search engines couldn't crawl effectively, that people uh, with disabilities couldn't access very effectively, right? We're talking about the days of Flash being the primary deliverer of really engaging experiential um, experiences on the web across the board, right? 10 years ago, if you roll back the clock, every movie had its own microsite that was built. They were all built in Flash, right? The coolest things were all built that way Mm -hmm. um, as sort of a workaround around the constraints of the web. Since then, just the modern frameworks that have come into being built on top of uh, JavaScript, uh, CSS, and HTML, And the evolution of those technologies have allowed it to catch up pretty quickly and surpass what was capable with an embedded runtime environment. And that's allowed us to create things that are a lot more semantic, um, that are a lot easier to access. And frankly, it's being driven by the way that we interact with the web. So the web is really just a reflection of our expectations as, as users of it, right? We want things faster. We want to get to things smarter and easier. Every service that spins up has a goal of making something easier for somebody. And when you add those up over a thousand and magnify them, then you get to where we are with the web today, which some might view as slightly homogenized in terms of everything looking the same. And, and, but others might view it as, Hey, we're learning these best practices from the way things should be laid out and the way that human beings understand content on a device like that to interact with them. Well, I think one thing that's really important for brands to, to think about is what is the use of their website? What is the goal? What is the end goal? Is it just a, uh, you know, robust online 
digital brochure? Is it just for information? Is it more interactive? Are we doing a web, you know, e-commerce? Are people ordering off of it? So what is, what kind of goals do you have set up? What are you tracking? How are, how, I guess, are you tracking if you're tracking your successes? Mm -hmm. and, and how does that page get used? One of the stats I found very interesting at our local AMA summit, a stat that I heard was 85% of customer interactions will be managed without human intervention by 2020, which seems like that's a pretty staggering yeah. statistic. And so as you were talking about web automation and chat bots and all that kind of stuff, I mean, there's, there's some pretty deep things to be considered there. And I think that's more of where the web has gone as far as trying to get the most basic information out and educate people about, you know, brands and products. Uh, the mobile versus desktop. I'm, I'm constantly thrown between these two because I know that where are we at with mobile? Is it 50%, just over 50%? Yeah, of overall website traffic. Yeah, right? yeah, it's above fifty percent at this time. Um, you know, it depends on what stats you're looking at too. So I think it's important for organizations to view stats with a little bit of skepticism, or at least look into them a little bit. Right, a lot of the stats tend to be worldwide, um, and if you don't sell globally, those stats might be less important to you. So you should look at the markets that you have access to and what, where you're looking to provide services. Um, but across the board, when you think about mobile versus desktop, mobile is is probably the first thing you need to be paying attention to. If it works on a phone, it's going to work on a desktop. It may not be ideal, but it's better to go that route than the opposite route, which is it works great on desktop and it's completely unusable on the device that most people want to use it on. Now, how do I get out of the mindset of, because I, when I'm not at work, of course, I'm looking at most things on my mobile device. But when I'm at work and I'm in WordPress and I'm building things, I'm on my desktop. Mm. Now, I know you can drag and scale and we do have a scalable website, so it will show you. But oftentimes I'll go onto my cell phone and actually look at it. I'm a little bit old school. I haven't upgraded. I've still got an iPhone 6. So it's a little smaller screen, but a lot of times it looks different on there than the pre-published one that MailChimp is giving me that, um, you know, WordPress has given me, et cetera. So what is the best way to design for mobile if you're doing your design on a desktop? Yeah. Uh, mindfulness, I think, right? You're doing a lot of what makes sense. Check it, check it often. Don't wait until the last minute. And some of it is approach. From a design perspective or US, UX perspective, where are you approaching the initial concepting from? Are you still defaulting to pulling up a desktop-sized comp software of some kind and working that way? Or are you actively forcing yourself to pull up uh, you know, an artboard that's only 320 pixels wide and making your solutions fit into that? I think the mind frame you're in and being mindful about that goes a long way to ensuring that it's going to cause you less heartache as you're adjusting stuff later. Well, There's no perfect solution yet. Right, right. Well, and certainly making sure that you're looking on these different devices. Like you said, the responsiveness is not always accurate. Um, we just had a site that we launched, and it was not a big site, but looking at it on from a Google Pixel phone to a tablet to an actual iPad versus just the responsive, we found some things that weren't working correctly, so we had to adjust that mm -hmm. styling. So. If you can have friends, family to check stuff out, send you screenshots, that's a great way to, to QA test, really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, there's different people on different devices, different browsers, different operating systems. And so you, you never really know what they're seeing on the other end of it. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to add to that, too, is that it's not just those things. It's also networks and countries mm -hmm. do things differently. So... 
Um, for instance, if you're looking at emerging countries, a place like India, right? Some of the way that they're adjusting the bandwidth and the lack of it there is by making sweeping changes to how browsers prioritize imagery or what they're going to do with it. And so it is really important if you're targeting those markets to think about that a little bit. Um, you know, there is a percentage of users that view websites in reader mode. So when is the last time you clicked that little button at the top and just looked at what your website looks like as plain text with no imagery, no fancy videos, nothing but the copy, right? Half the time, what you'll find if you pull a website up like that is that it's missing 50% of the context. And now from a plain reader view, it makes no sense whatsoever. But reader view is... Great point a big chunk of what a search engine sees when they pull it up. You have to give it the other information, but some people have decided they don't want to see any of your images anyway. So when you're building out your website, of course, depending on how robust, how big, and, and what your use is for it, is there a specific size that it should be as far as how many pages you have, how many links you have, and how much content on each page? Is there any kind of general rule of thumb for, for that? No. <laughs> um, it needs to be as small as it can be to do all the things it needs to do. I, you know, I would say we see a lot of websites that are huge in a, in a way that they're bloated, right? And they mm -hmm. tend to be sites that are really long in the tooth. They haven't been touched in a long time and they've just been added on like the Remington mansion, right? It's this crazy mix of things that no longer make sense. But we also see a lot of sites that are missing critical information in terms of how a buyer or a user would execute the next phase in their journey, right? Um, you know, great example, the other day we were looking at a furniture manufacturer that's getting a lot of additional competition and they're sort of halfway in between what you could buy on Amazon and what you might need to buy from one of the larger manufacturers in town, uh, but they don't have price on their website. And I think it's an important thing to note based on where you are in the ecosystem that probably the first thing people are looking for on that website is how much the products cost because they're comparing you to how cheap or expensive they are compared to what they can buy on Amazon, right? So, yeah, so if you're not giving them that, that information. I the mean, only thing they care about right now. Right, right. I mean, the, the age of, of them wanting to contact you for all that info, if you're not giving them what they want initially, they're not gonna give you a second thought. No, because you know, there's probably 10 other websites right behind you that will. Yeah, right. Well, and, and, you know, the more robust searches now that will populate all that stuff for you automatically. So on that topic, SEO, so you can write your content for how you think your personas need solutions that you have or have problems that you have solutions for, but you also can write them so that they can be better accessed by Google searches, SEO and the, the technical where we're talking now meta tags and mm -hmm. schemas and all that kind of stuff. So how do you incorporate when, okay, I'm going to build a couple pages on my website. How do you take all that into effect when you create that page? Uh, before you start creating it, I think when you when you're thinking about SEO, sometimes people treat it like it's a after the fact, right? So they've created these pages, the content, whatever's going to be on there, and then they go in and they start adjusting SEO and copy and things like that. I think on one hand, it depends on how complicated of an organization you are. Um, and for a lot of our clients, final copy has to go through compliance, right? So there isn't the, the ability for somebody who has access to the to the CMS to just change some words like people aren't allowed to just change words it has to go through legal at that point and so that stuff needs to get taken into account right away 
And also the pushback needs to happen on the compliance department too, because they'll quite often ask for things that make the SEO worse on the site from a content perspective. Um, and even the product managers at the end of the day, right? Um, so I think considering that stuff right away, considering it um, as part of the outline for the entire reason you're creating those pages, it's very easy as a content creator of any sort to understand at a high level, we're gonna make these pages because they need to have these five things on them, that's what's important. And then they forget that they need to promote those five things as part of the SEO when it's actually published and they get lost in the, we need a better image and we need another paragraph of copy and uh, we need four approvals across the board. So it just, it requires you to think about that first, the same way as we were discussing mobile or desktop, you know, if you're considerably uh, more likely to think about mobile first than desktop, you're going to, you're going to do a better job overall. If, if you're far more likely to be considering SEO as one of the very first things that you're thinking about or addressing before you even start making the content, then you're going to do a better job. So ideally you would do an outline of all your keywords and all of the, the other meta tags and see that's where i get a little confused so so mm -hmm. recently we had and one of my other questions too was a plugin so we have yoast seo yeah. which tries to walk you through snippets your seo title your slug your meta description key phrase yada, yada. i don't know how to use all those correctly yet so it, we can you, tell a little bit off, just yeah. by what you're saying right? <laughs> So somebody explained it to me. Do I should I start out by defining what those are with my outline and then writing my content? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. As an exercise for everyone listening and for yourself, I think just write something without considering it and then allow the tool to inform your process later, right? Yoast by its very nature, it's not guaranteeing you anything. It's trying to interpret the way that the search engines will view it. It's trying to give you an idea of what the search engine will think this page is about. It does a great job of doing some high-level color coding that we all understand from red to green, right? Every I get that. Yeah. Green, I would like the page to be green. Thank <laughs> you. Right. We have sites that are red where their client's still on the first page of the results, though. So. Yeah those different things. And I've always told clients and writers too, if you're going to start writing to your keywords that you're targeting, you're going to put immediate writer's block and your content's going to suck. Okay. So it's keep in mind, it's always, who are you writing for? Who are you talking to? And what's this page about? So planning your site navigation and your architecture for your user paths really need to start first. Then you think about your copy and then you can do, you know, do your keyword research and make sure that all those on-page elements are optimized but if you start necessarily with all of those, it just, it content feels clunky. And, you know, being an, an SEO type person, you can tell a site that's written for the user or one that's written for SEO. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Especially, I think, if you come from like a journalism background, you will find that writing to keywords is going to be very uh, friction for you. Um, and then I think, you know, if you look at more of what SEO Yoast does, some of it is just helpful as a feedback loop to educate yourself around why certain things are viewed in certain ways by the search engine. So SEO title is a good example, right? They'll give you feedback about where the defined keyword is within the length and how close it is. That, that really is just providing feedback that basically says if a user is scrolling down a page of 50 results and they don't see the word they were searching for within the first three or four words, they're probably not going to click on your page. So while it's not going to massively hurt you to not have that in there, it may possibly affect how likely a user is to click on your page, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, you need to get them there. So sometimes it's easy, right? It will give you um, suggestions. 
any of these tools were that are just simple rewordings and they don't change the meaning either way, but it makes it easier for a user to self-identify that content as being appropriate to their query. Great, make those changes. When it tells you to do ridiculous things like uh, there's not enough keyword density or there's too much keyword density or you need to rewrite the entire first chunk of your um, content, then take that with a grain of salt and do what makes sense. I think if you're viewing those plugins as I need to optimize every single page to be green, you're going to find yourself very frustrated. Okay. I mean, are they helpful tools though for just getting you in the right? Yeah, I think so. I, it depends on who you are within the organization and what you're trying to do but they're helpful feedback tools and they do point you in the right direction. Ultimately, what they're hoping to do is just help you create better content and content that users care about. So if you wanna focus on one thing more than anything else, it's just create good content. Okay. It's always good to have a point of reference. I mean, those mm -hmm. things are nice just to have a bit of an idea or a guideline, but they aren't the, the end all for sure. And, and then how much does that fa factor into the What's really working on your website as far as, I know loading speed is a big thing and you can do, um, so GoDaddy has the tool where you can mm -hmm. look at your website performance and then it will tell you you're color coded, red, yellow, green. And then, you know, if your image sizes are off, your optimal CSS size, uh, scaling images, all that kind of stuff. So is it SEO and photos that are really kind of playing into that, that end score? I mean, I think your asset size and how much you're loading on the page and the, the way it's being loaded has a huge effect on page speed, right? So a couple of examples, right? Quite often, um, if there's not a great feedback loop between design and development, design um, and, and image creation will tend to create things in as high a resolution, as beautiful as possible, the biggest image, right? Because you always want to save it as high res as you can, and then you can knock it down from there. Sometimes people will forget to resize things or optimize them after they export them out of Photoshop. If you're just exporting images out of Photoshop, those are not the most optimized images. There's free software out there you can drop them into and probably shave 20, 40, 50% of the file size off with no quality. Um, issue. Um, image Optimize is a great tool if your users are, are looking for something simple that doesn't require any setup that will shave size off. Also, like at some point, the image doesn't get any bigger on your website. So uploading images that are physically pixel-wise bigger than the largest it can possibly get is clearly a waste of um, bandwidth. And then on top of that, what you'll sometimes find is that depending on how a website's built, if they're not loading content asynchronously or if they're loading all the content on the page relative of what, like they don't care what tab it's in, they're loading everything. So they're loading all the content on all the tabs in case you might click on it instead of waiting to load it after you click on it, uh, that will massively increase your file size that needs to be downloaded before anything's rendered. So from a technical SEO perspective, it's important to take a look at how the site was built and what the what the speed to first render is, right? How quickly does a user see something? Not only on websites, but the easiest way to understand this is um, the real time to render and the perceived time to render. If you open up any of your modern apps, especially the social network apps, and you turn off your wireless and just look at the interface, it will load a bunch of really small animated GIFs that give you the impression that something's loading, even though in this instance, since you've turned your wireless off, it will never load. But they understand that from a psychology perspective, that small glimpse of a thing kind of loading has made you think the entire app is loading faster 
And so it sort of eases some of that user burden. Um, and they know that they've got to show you something right away. Otherwise, people assume it's just broken instead of loading. So is that the first step as far as doing a, an analysis of your entire website, your web map, as, as far as moving forward? Do you need to start a new website, redesign a whole new website, tweak what you have? How does that process look when somebody says, okay, we haven't focused on this stuff for a while, so let's just do, a, let's do an audit and find out where we need to go? I think it depends on how long a while is, right? So if you if no one's touched anything on your website in half a decade, there's probably some immediate things you need to do, even if the site's still great. It most likely doesn't have an SSL certificate if it hasn't been touched in that long, and there's some implications to that, whether you are or are not passing user information back and forth. Um, I would be careful with that. Uh, Currently, my understanding is that just installing an SSL certificate changes the URL and Google views that as an entirely new website unless you go into the tools and tell it it's not. Oh. Right. So we have seen some clients that have installed it and lost all of their organic traffic because they basically told Google their entire website is no longer exists and there's a brand new fresh one that it needs to re-index at this point. Interesting. And that's just the addition of the S to the HTTP, right? Yep. So when you add the S in, because... Now browsers will will warn you if you go to a site that doesn't have the S, they might say mm -hmm. this is a non-secure site and they flag it. Yep. But now you're saying if you add that S, that might actually change. It wow. can have an effect on it. There's tool Google has tools to basically say this website is now that website. Please remap it. And in the meantime, consider this as like a redirect in oh, that wow. case, right? Mm -hmm. um, you have to have ownership of the site to do that. You have to have access to it. Um, but there's a reason that tool exists. Right? Because for, in some cases, those two sites, the difference of the S, they're literally entirely different websites. Um, it's the same way a, a subdomain might be. Yeah. And you want to have, yeah, I mean, you want to, and SSLs, I think for basic websites are, are pretty affordable. I mean, this is not yeah. an expensive thing. A lot of them are free depending mm -hmm. on the hosting that you go for. Mm -hmm. If anybody's charging you more than like $100 or more at this point, you're probably either overpaying or you have a really complicated um, website infrastructure that requires some heavier investment. If that's the case, you're also not paying any attention to the $500 SSL either, probably. And what is the, are there pros and cons to if you are having your hosting done locally by a small agency or if you're doing shared hosting through GoDaddy or DreamHost, one of the big online services? Um, I think there's pros and cons. It depends on what the agency is using, right? Everybody, I think everybody should know who really hosts their website mm -hmm. at the end of the day. If, if you don't know that, I would ask that question right away as well. Uh, we don't internally host any websites for our clients, so none of our clients' websites are hosted on our local servers here. If that's the case, there is some cons to that being that when the power substation goes out over here, everyone's website goes down, right? Um, and so if it's not being hosted by some sort of cloud solution at this point, you should be looking at that, um, whether it's local or national at that point, it becomes irrelevant, right? It's just kind of being hosted by the universe. Um, and that is the biggest pro for that, which is when things like wildfires happen or data centers go down, it's distributed. And so your website doesn't have much of an effect. It could still, depending on how large the outage is, but you shouldn't have your website sitting on a single box somewhere in one person's closet. <laughs> you know, 
Right. Hopefully small agencies are not hosting yeah, yeah. sites on their own either. Right. Even for the, you know, dozen or so that we host, we don't host them. We host them through, you know, WP Engine. We also work with another company locally. So we have kind of a secondary support if we need it. Cause, and then, you know, our team as well from a development perspective. So there's like three touch points for support, depending on how much it escalates or what the real issue is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you want to make sure that we've got uh, a good secure site going, and and another thing to think about too is the the data data and and legal aspect of if you are doing e commerce, if you're taking payments over your website to have is is that an SSL as well that you have mm-hmm. that secures your your yeah. payments? You'll mm-hmm. never be compliant without that. I, I mean, obvi- honestly, the SSL thing was sort of pushed and born out of e commerce. That's the encrypted transaction and user data going back and forth. If you weren't ever doing things like that, people didn't really care much about it. But at this point in time, it's become sort of required or standard for everyone, especially with the amount of personal data that we're pushing back and forth. And so while it may have been pushed out of that industry and a few others, um, there's really no downside to having it. There are tons of downsides to not having it, including the one you listed, which is the browser will now tell you that that website's not secure, which is probably not the first impression you want a potential user getting. Um, that's if they can actually access it. We have, as you can imagine, in the space we work in with financial institutions, they sometimes have very heavy IT restrictions, and some of the modified browsers that they use will actually not allow a website to render if it doesn't have an SSL. So they don't even get to the point where you're at. It's like just blocked by their own infrastructure. So. Well, and now also in the days of, uh, well, GDPR and upcoming is CCPA, right? Because that hasn't gone into effect yet. California. For California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, not that it's going to affect everybody, but it is something to be aware of as far as privacy policies and reporting the the data that you are collecting, even if you're using Google Analytics. Uh, Recently, we spoke to uh, Jennifer Poplava at Michael Myers about uh, making sure that you are keeping your website legal. And we went into great detail. Um, That was episode 11 in July, uh, where we talk a lot about that. We kind of get down to it on a basic level. But um, really, everybody, at some point when you go on, there should be a a privacy policy Mm -hmm. or disclosures about um, cookies and how that information is being collected, even if you're doing just standard Google Analytics, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you've got all kinds of, you know, customer data touch points. And think about how recruiting and marketing has changed as well. So you think about job applications and all that information. um, And you might have an application form on a site with an SSL. But if that form is being transmitted just via email from the website to someone, you're only as secure as an email. Therefore, Mm -hmm. you are not secure. You don't want a social security number or anything like that being transmitted that way because it's so vulnerable. Yeah. And I, and I think the information thing, whether or not it's gone into effect in California, I think we'd be kidding ourselves to think that those similar laws aren't going to be put in place with every state in the United States. At some point, this conversation is not going to go away on a daily basis. You're going to hear about security breaches and people's information getting mm-hmm. pushed out there. And people are frankly more aware of it now at this point than they have been because People are more sophisticated and there's better ways to use that data than there ever has been, right? As long we have this push to personalization, which requires us to have that data. And ultimately, most um, web users would say they want their content to be as personalized as humanly possible. But on the other side of that, they don't want to share the information required to make it personal, right? So there's going to be this friction that's always in place. And it's ultimately, it's going to be on the organization to... uh, 
prove what data they have, prove that they can get rid of it, prove that it's secure. So, okay. And so you want to make sure, obviously, that you have a secure website. You want to make sure that you're legal and you're covered on, on all of those ends. So you do your analysis of your website and you find out, okay, so a couple different scenarios. Things are, uh, there's nothing you can do with the current website. You need a whole new infrastructure or, you know, maybe you just have to tweak a few things or maybe you just need a whole new overhaul. Um, how does that process look and are there organizations or companies or what is the cost for something like that for somebody to go in and, and do that for you and say okay here's what we ran here's what we found here's what you need to do and, and make those types of suggestions that's a loaded question that's yeah. like saying you're gonna buy a house mm -hmm. how, <laughs> how big is this house and <laughs> right. uh, it's a different price in a different school district right um yeah you can definitely find organizations that just do that Right, that they that they're consultancies and they run those things and they'll do it on either their, your website or your messaging, your branding, any flavor in between there. Uh, I mean, I think internally, if you're driving the process, someone internal should take some ownership of that and be aware of what needs to get done. And if you're interested in finding a partner, ask other people that you know that have worked with partners that trust them. Look for people that specialize in it. Um, any. If you're working with an agency and they're suggesting something like that, they're going to recommend a discovery or a workshop of some kind. They're going to recommend that they want their subject matter experts to take a look at what you've got in place and come up with the right plan for you. I think ultimately you want to find a partnership with someone that you trust to do that and you trust the results from based on who they've worked with, uh, personal recommendations, call them, ask for, um, you know, an amazing idea and something that we're happy to do for our potential clients too is ask for a contact of someone who's left that isn't their contact anymore um, and talk to them too about why they left and the experience they had. Um, and if the agency's not willing to supply that, then that might be a, a piece of insight into <laughs> whether or not you want to work with them at the end of the day. I mean, I think ultimately you've got to find experts. If you, if you lack the expertise in-house, you should engage an expert to help you do it. How big that engagement needs to be is also kind of a um, an exercise in how big is your team? What can you do? What can you support? Um, and that's going to be different for everybody. Some engagements we do are relatively small and minor, and we can do them over a Zoom conference. Others require us to pack up a team of people and fly them halfway across the country and hold physical all-day workshops with people. And that's more expensive than the first option, right? I'm kind of a one man team on the website and I like to learn and do as much as I can, but I want to find that right balance of, okay, this is what I know I can handle and realistically handle. And this is what I should uh, make sure to hire somebody or have our, our marketing agency help us with. So is there any kind of mix realistically about, you know, what you'd recommend for people that aren't real experts in the field of web development to do versus what the experts should handle? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody can run their site through some auditing tools easily, right? Page speed, a few other things. If you have access to like SEM Rush and a few other tools that are out there, that's going to immediately give you a very high level indication of is, is this thing incredibly broken or is it just kind of broken or do I need to fix a few things, right? As we've mentioned a few times all, already, all that stuff is pretty heavily color coded. If you get back a box of red crayons, you're probably not in a good position. Um, but if you're also a small one person team, 
you may not have the capabilities of fixing the things that come back, right? Uh, you may not have access to it. Um, it really just depends across the board. But there's free tools out there that are easy enough to use and it, it really just requires you to be able to copy and paste your URL into a website and get a good idea about whether or not you should talk to somebody with more expertise than you. Okay. Well, and a lot of it comes down to, I mean, why are you in this spot anyway, right? Like, why are mm. we, why are we considering redeveloping the site? You know, usually if there's new people, they want to change things at a company. Um, do you, I mean, look at how much technical debt you have, if it's really old um, and you, even the platform that it's on, I mean, you're rattling off WordPress and WordPress plugins, which is a very popular content management system, but a lot of bigger sites. I mean, we've done sites from you know, anything super small on Squarespace to a custom enterprise development, you know, site. So we could do 5000 to $500,000. So it really comes down to why are we doing this? You know, what are the most important things for us as a as our company, our goals? What are we doing? And then what do we need to make that happen? So, I mean, just randomly trying WordPress plugins that you haven't vetted or things on your live site can, can be scary. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of my experience, too, has been from that uh, that smaller business aspect. Let's talk about the bigger and, and enterprise. So as far as CMS systems, is is Drupal, that's like a more advanced enterprise size tool? Just another one of the... I think it just depends on who you ask. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of, I mean, programmers and agencies and development firms all have their own preferred platform and what they're all, you know, educated in because it's really a different language. I mean, you've got licensed programs that are .NET like Kentico, and then you've got open source PHP that are Drupal and Joomla and WordPress. And it just depends on what they're comfortable with. And that's just the development stuff because there's even more custom. And then you've got front end, CSS, HTML5, mm -hmm. and all that other stuff he was talking about earlier. I told you I was dangerous. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and when I when I actually wanted to start learning a little more about the background of websites, I can I think it was maybe six years ago, I took a, an extended ed class on Dreamweaver. Oh wow! And wow, old that school, was, right? And the, well, it was funny because I signed up and I took this class, and the whole time they're saying, you know, we really should be teaching to WordPress because Dreamweaver's kind of going away. So it was in that transition, but. The, the prerequisite was that you had to take a, a basic HTML mm -hmm. and CSS writing course. So is if you're not a programmer and you're just using a lot of these more popular tools that are available now with, with more of the you know uh, custom WYSIWYG user inter interfaces, do you still need to know HTML? I, I get where it's helpful because when I'm doing stuff and it's not... Uh, headlines aren't showing up like they need to, whether it's in MailChimp and WordPress, I can look at the code and I know how to go take, you know, the H1 out and move some things around. But is that really a requirement these days if you're not a programmer? Um, I would say learning how to code is a requirement for human existence in a first world country now. <laughs> <laughs> My nine-year-old knows JavaScript, right? Um, might be because she grew up with a father who's a programmer, but this might is... Might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is going to, I mean, she doesn't. With, she knows it with quotes around it, right? right? She's not building uh, a React Native apps at this point, but she can she can go in with me and adjust. We build little video games, and she can adjust like the speed and the variables, and she understands the basics around object oriented programming. I think it's an important mental model to know. Now, based on who you are in an organization, do you need to know it? Probably not. Um, I, do I think it's incredibly helpful for designers to be able to know it? Yes, because they can provide feedback right in 
like the web dev tools, they can move things around, they can change the size of the fonts and adjust the CSS. I think it's important for them to know that because not because they should know it, but because I think it helps empower them to do their job and have more educated conversations with the developer that they're working with. At the same time, I would say on our team, where what I've found to be the most effective and passionate developers often have somewhat of a background in art of some kind as well, whether it's a mathematical kind like music or whether it's actual fine art degrees. They just sort of innately understand, at least from a front-end developer perspective, they understand the principles of design, so they're far more likely to execute designs within the constraints that have been approved. Right? Do I think either of those roles have to have the opposite? No. But it's helpful if you can find the right unicorns. Okay. Yeah, I just I find I find that world so fascinating. I just I've I've only scratched the surface of it, but to know people do that and write code all day, it just kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Well, if you want to fascinate, you can just go sit behind the developers over there and watch them. <laughs> Is it like the Matrix with the trickling screens? No. Okay. It's nowhere near that cool. <laughs> Uh, how far down the rabbit hole would you like to go? Let's talk a little bit about, as far as any of these concepts that we're talking about with websites, whether it's development, whether it's the analytics, does any mm-hmm. of that change, whether you're talking about B2B and B2C, or are a lot of those concepts kind of cohesive? For, I mean, for us, it does, not fundamentally, but it does in the way that some of the web is built in the way that users use it, right? Most, when we talked about e-commerce, Almost none of our clients have e-commerce. They're selling through really complicated distribution channels. They don't sell on Amazon. They're not doing e-commerce of any kind. They don't sell small widgets. Um, And so some of those concerns are not there, but uh, a lot of their concerns are around making sure that the correct technical documentation and all those things are on the site in a way that it can be um, referenced and that it can be uh, found in search results and things like that. So there's a lot of overlap. I do think that our clients in the B2B space tend to, especially in the in the middle size market, right? There's like the enterprise level where they can afford to buy really big installations of uh, magical software. And then there's the small level where they don't have any integrations. Most of where we play is sort of in the mid to high level area. And in a lot of those cases, they have a large amount of homegrown systems tied into their website. So it's almost like they're using their website as a CRM and the email marketing. It's all kind of built in there. So that makes it harder to move off of it, right? Like you've accrued what you said earlier is a huge amount of tech debt. And you know, you're kind of stuck in this thing. And if you want a new website, you're also replacing your CRM and all these other things or having to think through that. Um, and so that does have an effect on how fast they move and what they do with the things. Um, yeah. But ultimately, most of our B2B clients have to operate as if they're talking and marketing to consumers at the end of the day, because whether they're uh, selling through distribution or to trade professionals, those people are consumers. And so the expectation is that the site will look as well as any consumer site. It's going to load and be as easy to use as any consumer site. So. While a lot of the business practices are, are significantly different, the end result for how the site needs to be built and operate and experienced is the same. You're still talking to people yep. and search engines, mm-hmm. but people. <laughs> On the line of search engines, how big of an impact or how proactive should organizations be about the rise of conversational search? Uh, I think I think it's huge. Personally, um, the way that we talk about it with our clients is it really it just dovetails into SEO. Like we've been asking people to write better content for a long time, create better content, write better content, write it more natural. Right. 
Um, when you go onto a website and you're accessing content about a product or something else, if it reads like it's an encyclopedia, probably far less likely to read it. You can leave that stuff in the technical document or the user manual. I don't need any of it to make a purchasing decision. Um, in the meantime, what we've gotten is a lot of devices that uh, facilitate conversational um, searches, right? You can talk back and forth with a digital voice assistant. Now, currently, it takes all that stuff and it sort of removes all your conversationalness and chunks it back into search engine terms or less long tail terms. But that's because that's what the majority of the web is optimized for. As more and more people optimize towards conversational long tail uh, phrases, those devices will stop compensating. Like they're going to remove that middle layer and they're just going to start searching on those things. Um, so when you search for something on that small device in the corner over here that will interrupt us if I say its name, <laughs> if you say, you know, what's the best restaurant in Grand Rapids, it takes that and just rips out a lot of stuff in, in searches for best restaurant in Grand Rapids. And then when it finds the results, it injects its own conversation back into that for you. Interesting. Okay. What about the, is, is there any kind of average, and I know that this changes with technology, a, just a common life, cycle, common life cycle of a website before you need to do a major revamp or redesign? If you're considering a major revamp or redesign, it's probably past its life cycle. At this point, modern websites should be viewed more as like iterative, right? Um, and that means that it's time to start changing it on day two. Like really, if you have to do a big revamp and a, a big rebuild, as part of that, you should be putting in place your experimentation plan right up front. How are we going to A-B test? What's the smallest thing we could humanly launch? Even at the enterprise level, like the size of an organization is irrelevant to this. Don't, please don't build the entire thing and just launch it and like ignore it again because you're just going to get yourself in a cycle. Build what you need to to replace the functions that you defined as important to the user and the business and then see how important they really are and use the rest of your budget to build out additional value add things and keep testing and building. And then don't ever let yourself get out of that practice. Just continue to do it. If you're working with a partner, consider yourself to be married forever. Don't consider this a one time, like we're just gonna spend this thing and then we're never gonna talk with each other again. Um, really consider yourself to be partners. And then, yeah, the, the size of the engagement can go up and down but you should never disengage because as soon as you disengage, your competition is effectively remaining engaged with uh, their partner or internally, and they're just driving past you at that point. And that's really one of those things. I think we uh, mentioned in conversation earlier, it's almost more the website is your, your journey. There's no real destination. It's not like you ever get there and, and say, we're done. This is great. Mm -hmm. It's fluid. It's, it's like a river. It's changing and you have to kind of roll with it and just and, and keep up with it. Yeah. I think what you typically see is even if an organization has a dedicated partner, they won't consider, they won't think that they've disengaged. But what they will do is they'll, they'll show up three months later and they want these products added, right? Well, you could have been having a smaller conversation the entire time, like, you know, those products are coming. The pages could have been built out, A-B tests could have been put in place, all that stuff could have been done. And also in the meantime, through conversation, you might have noticed something weird in analytics that you want to address and fix that as well. Instead of waiting three months, doing a small project-based thing, um, and then just executing that thing and not paying any attention to what's happening on the site in the meantime.
So at the point you do whatever it is that you do need to do, hopefully it's just some small tweaks to massage and get things back to place, but you get it to where you want it to be for that day. What kind of things do you think about for future proofing? And again, to get into that proactive mindset of how can we start Mm -hmm. thinking a little bit ahead of the curve? Uh, Make sure you're being goal driven. I think from the very beginning, right? If you're engaging with a, with a partner to help you rebuild a website or any marketing whatsoever, if, if you're not, discussing and creating goals right off the bat, then you're setting yourself up to have a failure of a project, regardless of what it is, website, marketing campaign, product launch, it doesn't matter. Um, optimizing towards those goals is is what you're asking, right? Like the best way to set yourself up for success in the long run in the long run is to continue to optimize against those same goals. If you meet those goals, find new goals and optimize against those goals. And so you're always actively pushing and monitoring those goals, right? Um, and it can be as simple as a, a Google Data Studio dashboard if you're on the on the small end and you don't have like access to Tableau or anything. But you should be viewing and looking and thinking about the goals for your marketing and the website constantly if you're in that role um, and adjusting them. I think one of the most amazing things about the web right now is you can make a small adjustment today and you can see immediate change and if it's the wrong direction, just change it back. It's not, this isn't cement. It doesn't dry and have to be jackhammered out, right? Like you can, I could log onto our website right now and, and change all the content on the homepage for four hours. And it would probably have very little effect on my business. And tomorrow I could go back and change it back. But most people would be terrified to do that just because they view it like it's a sacred thing when really like you should be experimenting at that level all the time. Mm-hmm. What about things like Google Optimize and other optimization A-B testing tools? Mm-hmm. I think those are, those are a really critical, like easy entry point to this, right? So even if you didn't put an, uh, an A-B testing plan in place, you could have Google Optimize installed on your site really quickly by someone and you can go in there. It'll run you through its tutorial on how to use it and you can put some really simple A-B tests in place that also just push right into your analytics for you because it's the same system ultimately and and start creating a culture or a mindset around testing things. And it can be as small as like change the color on the CTA of the button, right? I don't know how many uh, conversations I've had in my career around the color of buttons with various stakeholders when ultimately it's people not using the site trying to decide what color it should be. For things like that, let the users decide, right? Data and users will tell you what the most effective thing is. And obviously you don't want to game that system by creating things. Like if they're if the button is to get people to sign up for the newsletter, you don't create a button that says like five hundred dollars free, click here. That's not that will of course perform better. <laughs> um, but like small things, the phrasing on a button can make a huge difference, especially if the initial phrase was unclear, right? So testing those things is easy. Pricing. You know, I've heard, I've heard people talking recently um, about using A-B tests to change the price of products, not based on personal history or uh, data at all. But, hey, if organizationally, if we feel like cutting the price of this product by $10, we'll increase sales by 200%. Great. Let's test it for like 25% of our users and see if it does. You no longer have an argument about like, is $10 the right amount of price cut? Do we only need to cut it by $2? Does it need to be $30? Just let the data tell you. Just do something, test it, and change it back if it doesn't work. How proactive do you need to be about thinking 
about APIs for other CMS systems, uh, things that you may be using. So if you're if you're working on a website and you have something you're already using for your email and you have something that you're using as a, a separate CMS system, and I know that on the IT side there's a lot of things, but you don't always know what the future is going to bring. So and and not all APIs talk to each other. So how proactive can you be when planning for those types of integrations? Uh, I think it depends on whether or not you've got a seat at that table at all organizationally, right? Sometimes that decision's being made by IT and they're not consulting anybody. Sometimes it's being made by sales and they're also not consulting anybody. And now increasingly, uh, we're the victim of our own behavior, which is marketing is getting a lot more sway in what technology is being bought. And sometimes we also don't consult other people as well as we should, even though we've been in the other position. Uh, I think it's it's super important to understand what data you have and what system it's in right now and whether or not that system still meets your needs. If it does and it can be integrated easily, uh, data migration is a pain, so avoid it. If it is just fundamentally not meeting your needs anymore because either the cost of the software is egregious or it's outdated or for whatever reason, right, then look at modernizing with something appropriate to your budget level, right? Can everybody, should everybody use Salesforce? No, probably not. Is it an amazing system? Yes. Uh, is it only as good as the people using it? Yes, that's true for every single system in the world. So you also need to really pay close attention to making sure that the things you decide to integrate are sustainable for you as an organization, not just something that your marketing partner or your technology partner is suggesting because it's with quotes around it, right? Like best in class. Well, best in class is usually expensive. And we've had plenty of examples with our clients where they've installed something only to find out after a massive investment that they couldn't possibly use it in the long run because it's too demanding, right? Like, oops, we need to hire 15 more people now to run this thing the right way or we get nothing out of it. Um, and then they just swap to another system. So, and data migration can be uh, really tricky, especially with the new rules around what you're moving from where and where you're storing it. And just across the board, we consistently see really uh, unclean data sets being used as if they're pristine, right? Like things that have never been vetted, things that haven't been touched in five years that all of a sudden you want to start marketing to people you haven't talked to in half a decade stuff like that. There's no trail of consent for uh, opting people in. So if you're getting into that point, you probably need to do take a good hard look and vet the actual data and where it came from and when it was collected and do we still actually have the right to use this and all those things as well. But from an API perspective, everything can be made to talk to almost everything at this point. And if there isn't an integration through something like Zapier or the product doesn't provide its own API, you can hire a talented developer to build you an API. Um, it just depends on how much effort you want to put into it. Right? So it's kind of a, it's the juice worth the squeeze kind of scenario in all cases, whether it's the CMS, a CRM, a new website. Um, you just have to identify what makes the most sense to you and where your priorities are as an organization. Yeah, that was a very interesting topic. We did uh, two new marketing tech talks where we focused a little bit more on marketing technology, and we talked about uh, different marketing technologies and pace layering, which was going down and actually, you know, what what are the goals of the organization? Where do they need to go and what technologies are appropriate? What are you using now? Kind of like the website. You do an analysis of what you're using and how can you get these all talking together? Is there a solution that you can use that would combine a lot of these? Is it better to have separate ones? 
And I think from the Gardner report, there's over 5,000 different marketing technologies that, that you could purchase. And there's some big ones like Salesforce and HubSpot is really big in a lot of arenas. And uh, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's overwhelming of the different products. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at either of those and the cost of entry, it depends on what you need. Do you need a Swiss Army knife? Like a, a HubSpot, I would consider to be kind of a Swiss Army knife. It's going to do a lot of things for you. Salesforce can be made to do anything depending on how much money you have. Um, and then we've got lots of clients that they don't have a singular system like that. They'll take data from a bunch of different sources and APIs and they import it into their own homegrown thing, normalize it, own it, back it up. And they, they ultimately own and control their entire data. And in some of them it's homegrown and others they partner with very large tech names to create their own data warehouses and their own data lakes. And they ultimately, they want to own all the data because that's where the value is to personalizing things for their customers. Okay. So one thing that, that didn't come up in my talk that I think is always interesting, I use it not because I'm paranoid, but I'm always fascinated by what marketing technology various organizations are running is a plugin called Ghostery, which a lot of people may be familiar with, but it will effectively pull up every injected piece of code and third-party tool that a website is pushing into the browser and it will let you open it up and see like oh they've got these tools and they're using these ad networks and they've got this content management system and all those things and quite often that's a great piece of insight in terms of what your competition might be doing which is helpful to just like go out there and see like what services and what things they're using um, and it's also helpful if, when you're on a site to just kind of understand potentially how they're doing things. Like how are they retargeting me? How are they providing this content that seems bizarrely like personalized to me, right? Um, and then sometimes it's shocking the lack of them that people have. Um, I mean, I think at, at a base level, it's not uncommon for us to find a client, to have a client come to us and, and when we request access to Google Analytics, they don't have it. Yep. It's not that they don't have access. It's literally not installed on their site. And then so the second one is like it's on there, but nobody at the organization can log into it. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, because it was like three interns ago or something. Yeah, like that. that does happen ago. a lot. <laughs> or um, or it's so old that, you know, I don't know how long ago it was, five, ten. It wasn't ten years ago, but maybe five or six years ago, it was really difficult to if you as an agency, if you set up the Google Analytics, it was really difficult to give it to the business afterwards, right? Mm. There was no concept of like trading properties to another person. It was tied to you forever. Um, and now there's very different practices in terms of that. Obviously that was like a deficiency within Google system that they addressed. They took a really long time to give agencies and other uh, people the tools to do that. The assumption was whoever's setting this up owns the website and they are the business as opposed to like a service provider who might be doing that for people. Right, right. So, Okay. So that's sometimes the case too, where like they don't have the access because it's old enough that they were never granted it and they don't own it. What website evaluation tools do you recommend? The best tool to figure out how to evaluate your website is Google. Just go on there and type in website evaluation tools. And unfortunately, you're going to get remarketed to as soon as you do that. But there's a never ending supply of these tools. Many of them are free. Um, I think there's a page on Google's um, developer area that just lists a bunch of tools you can use to evaluate it. Most of them happen to be Google's tools, which, you know, you can take with a grain of salt, but they're clearly wired into the machine that makes a lot of the decisions relative to what you're trying to evaluate on. And they're all free okay. at the end of the day. 
right? So they're at least a great place to start and do a small evaluation. Uh, and all it takes is probably a single Google search to find a thousand tools that I've never even heard of. Interesting. Well, what role should personalization and customer experience play in our websites? Other than the philosophical discussion around where does customer experience stop and end, which is very sort of a mirror to what we had a couple of years ago around user experience, right? feels like customer experience is maybe swallowing user experience, which swallowed every other practice at an organization. But ultimately, um, I think you're going to hear that a lot more. It's huge right now. It's a buzzword. Um, it's, it's something that people are paying attention to. You see a lot of conferences spinning up. You see a lot of organizations, not specifically agencies, but a lot of organizations now really starting to pay attention to the experience that they give their end customer or consumer from the beginning of their engagement with them all the way until the day they die as a human being, right? And thinking about life cycle like that, as opposed to the only thing that they used to be concerned about was when they first touch us, how long does it take them to spend money with us? And then we're out. Like we don't even care how long the product lasts or what it is. Like we're just sales driven and reducing the cost of a sale is the only thing we're focused on to the exclusion of almost everything, including innovation within the product and a bunch of other things. I think it's become clear based on the fact that organizations that focus on customer experience outperform every other organization, whether it's just morale, culture, or what a lot of CEOs will pay attention to, which is the S&P. Like they just simply outperform across the board because they have longer, more meaningful relationships with everyone that touches them. And the tools we have now allow us to enhance that. So if you're personalizing data, uh, right. This is the next step. They've been collect. We as a as an as a practice have been just collecting all this data and doing nothing with it for a really long time. And now we have the ability, with all the tools that are out there, to create really personalized and engaging experiences with users. And if you're not doing that with your data, you should start thinking about it. Within a year, it's probably going to be considered borderline neglect for you to not be doing that. And you're frankly, your competition is going to do it and they're going to engage with you better. I think there's a stat that Google just pushed out two days ago in their Google Think article that basically said that roughly 61% of consumers feel like the brands they love don't know them at all, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's a reflection of their expect, like they expect you to know them. They love you as a brand or as an organization and their expectation in return is that you should know me better than you do. Um, and if you think about their reaction, it's probably they're being served ads that aren't relevant to them. They're being served uh, messaging that is off in one way or another, right? Um, and it can come down to really small things like, you showed the wrong picture of a dog in this ad. I'm not a labradoodle guy. I'm, you know, like a chihuahua guy. And so I expect that the brand should be serving me ads with chihuahuas in it because I'm <laughs> the only person that I care about. Oh, that's right. Awesome. And, and, and then it gets even more egregious to, to that, which is like the equivalent of, of them using your wrong name, which you see, or like the injection in some sort of marketing automation tool. that's like uh, dear first name insert here kind of thing that just when you see it, even from a visual standpoint, it's jarring and it feels off as it relates to your perception of the brand and how it should be engaging with you, right? Um, and we have the ability to do it. I think it's just a lot of work. So places will sometimes shy away from it. They just want to create one base ad, right? They don't want to make 250. Really, you should make 250. I realize it's more work up front, 
but the numbers and the data and the studies are there to prove that if you make those 250 ads, your sales will reflect that at the end of the day. So it's all about the experience. Mm-hmm. It is. Well, there's even little things just as a, a content marketer, for example, um, I got an email the other day where I had downloaded a white paper from someone. So they said, hey, you might be interested in this, you know, download it here. And then yeah. I had to fill out the form again on the page. I'm like, you don't even know me then. <laughs> like, yes. why don't you just send it to me at this point? <laughs> what is all this UTM tracking in the in the URL bar if right. you're not using that <laughs> Right. to let me skip the form? <laughs> right. Come on. Those are, yeah. So those are, I mean, that's a pretty blatant example, but yeah. and, still and, an important one. And I think some of it too is like being conscious of the experience. We talked about the cookies, the policy thing, right? Um, one thing that I find quite often that aggravates me is when I have to click that thing every time I come to a website, can you please just use a cookie to remember? Like I said, it's okay for you to use cookies. Please use a cookie to remember that I said it's okay for you to use cookies and don't show me that thing again. It's super annoying. Yeah, that's a good point. That's Especially good point. when it takes up half of my phone, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? All right, Josh, before we let you off the hook, we got to ask you some uh, deep down personal questions. So first, who or what inspires you? Um, I won't give you the sappy kind of uh, my grandfather thing, although that's true. Um, So as a small kind of caveat, my grandfather passed away recently. It was time, so it's not a a sad affair ultimately. But one of the things that that stood out about his funeral services, um, the gentleman he worked for in his last job, made a comment about the fact that George, who was my grandfather, was the only employee that ever worked there that started at the age of 70 and got a 20-year anniversary watch. Wow. Right? Wow. He worked from 70 to 90 for this guy, and they strongly considered not hiring him at 70 because of his age. Right? (laughs) He was the head mechanic at uh, a large building company in town, ran the entire maintenance department, but they hired him at 70 to do work that probably by default, they would have wanted to hire a much younger, stronger person to do, but he stuck it out for 20 years. So by default, he inspires me at a broad range. What inspires me are people that are passionate about anything. I don't care what it is, but I find that really inspiring because they always do great things, right? Passion is one of the only things you can't teach somebody no matter what. They're either born with it or they find it somewhere in life. And when they find it, it's like a, an amazing thing to watch. People with passion do great things. And so, yeah, I could pick a single person, but I guarantee you whatever that person is, they're, they're super passionate about something. Yeah, it's nice to see that come out too. Yeah. What is your favorite personal development business or marketing related book? I'm going to be honest. I don't read a lot of books anymore. I listen to a lot of them on tape. <laughs> Books so on tape. Maybe, that still counts. Yeah, maybe that's not a dig at the the print industry. Sorry, guys. Um, but I don't listen to a lot of them. Uh, I think the last one I did, just in terms of like uh, self-help or business-related stuff, is it slightly result, uh, relates to this, is The Subtle Art of Not Giving Up. Oh, yeah. An effity thing, right? Um, and I, I listen to that more as an amusing sort of, oh, Um, my wife made me listen to it because she feels like I live my life that way anyway. So I had to sort of listen to it to vet her like, okay, how does she perceive the way that I deal with things? (laughs) And it's pretty accurate. Um, but it was, it was good. I think most of the books I read these days are for small children at bedtime. So my, uh, my, my literature exposure might be somewhat dwarfed at this point down to like dog man and, uh, Shel Silverstein, which yeah, it's good. Yeah, there there are some great um, children's books. The what the the one eyed wonky donkey. That's one of my favorites. 
Oh, yeah, the Wonky Donkey. That's my husband's favorite book, ah. actually. We had to buy that. And he has this thing, because our old house, you'd drive by and see his donkeys. And he'd be like, oh, my donkeys are outside. Yeah. So I got him a Father's Day card, then I found one with a donkey on it, and it made his day. He's like, this is the best card ever. The uh, one-eyed wonky donkey. It's just the wonky donkey. Yeah, <laughs> but the donkey. whole... I would say hilarious. that reading children's books has sort of redefined for me, like, at an exposure level, the vast majority of children's books are terrible. They're so bad. As an adult reading them, please, if you're a children's book author, author start considering the CX experience of the parent that's required <laughs> to read these books because they are terrible. They're the worst stuff I've ever read. And so it makes me feel like, you know what? If this doesn't work for me, I've got, I have to be able to, with an art background, I have to be able to make better children's books than the majority of people out there. So that's what I'm going to fall back on. There you go. Well, it should be like Pixar. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a movie that there's those, of course, tones that only the adults are going to enjoy and get, but the kids will chuckle too. Yeah. So it's entertainment for everybody. Mm-hmm. Should be able to do it in the books. I get mm-hmm. it. All right. If you could boil down what you learned in your career to one piece of advice for others, what would that be? I would say that the best piece of advice I could give people is to care about things to whatever amount you can, um, whether it's passion or like read about this or keep educated. Uh, the act of, of caring about things requires you to have empathy and those two things combined with each other will get you wherever you need to go in life. Like simply caring about stuff will make you stand out um, in, in a crowd of two people. One of them doesn't care. And the person who cares will always be more successful than the person that doesn't care at the end of the day. So I think that's broader than our industry. I think across the board, when I talk with young people, we work with the Kent ISD and everything else. Everybody has an opportunity to do whatever they want for a living now, especially with the internet. I mean, there's people on YouTube that make a living baking pies, you know, like whatever you care about and you're passionate about, do that thing. Um, as long as you're good at it, right? Like it, it doesn't require talent talent too you can't just love something a lot and be terrible at it um unless that's the the angle you're going at so okay so i got one more question then based off that because it sounds like you're going a lot in that direction what is your why uh again we're gonna get sappy my why is the people here so um we that is the last question when i when we run through employee onboarding here too which we tell a little bit of the story about how I purchased the agency and everything else, but very rarely do people ask me why I bought the agency because on paper, it was the least smart decision for me to do. Um, Helping the previous owner sell the agency to another agency on paper would have massively increased my salary, given me a five-year contract, locked me into all kinds of stuff. Like that's the least risky, safest thing for me to do. Um, And I decided not to do that because I really, I actually really care about the people that work here. Some of them have been friends with me for decades. Um, and it's important for me to be able to help people pay their mortgage and build something. And as a somewhat of an institution here, it's important for this place not to go away, I guess, within the marketing landscape of Grand Rapids. And that's, that's sort of settled on my shoulders. So it's not a marketing related thing. It's more of a people and process reason for me at this point. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Josh. We definitely appreciate the time today. Josh Stoffer, CEO of Blue Flame Thinking. How can people get a hold of you if they want to ask you some questions or some follow-up? Yeah. Relative to the topic today, jump on our website, go to the contact page, fill out the form. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. That's blueflamethinking.com. Grab me on LinkedIn. 
or anywhere else. Awesome. And uh, we'll put some links in the show notes as well from your presentation. I believe that had some of the tools and things that we were talking about in there that, that might also be a great resource for people. Thank you again, Josh. And uh, thank you, Rebecca. My pleasure. I'm excited now. I'm all inspired. Let's go build something. We're online at amawestmichigan.org and active on social media, where you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The national hub for the American Marketing Association is ama.org, where you can also find a chapter near you. The Marketers in Motion podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at amawestmichigan.org, where we encourage you not only to subscribe and share our podcast, but review, ask questions, get involved, and engage with us. Don't forget important links, content, and resources will be included in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Marketers in Motion podcast, powered by the West Michigan chapter of the American Marketing Association. What will you do with the information you learned today? Be inspired. Be creative. Be bold. Set your marketing in motion.